0: Let's open our Bibles to the third chapter of Romans, continuing our study. At the point at which we are reading and studying now, Paul is reaching the end of his indictment of man, and he is beginning his, what in effect are his summation remarks. If you know anything about the legal system and being in court, that an attorney, uh, toward the end now, sums up his arguments and brings forth uh, the last uh, of the indictments, the last of the statements to prove his case. And Paul is pointing to the 19th verse, which is the great climax of this passage, when he says that every mouth be closed, that the whole world is held accountable to God. He's not yet reached that point, but now he's approaching it, and he Uh, is speaking very strongly, and indeed the last witness that he calls to the witness stand against man is none other than God himself, through his word. And we'll examine this passage uh, over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at just three verses uh, this morning and see what God has to say about man. The whole issue really deals with man's guilt. We've been talking about that. Paul has addressed the very real guilt of the godless and the immoral people, that there is a judgment that they are going to experience that will last for eternity. But it doesn't just extend to those people, that his judgment extends to the self-righteous people, the people who are saying, I'm a good person, I don't need God, I don't need Jesus, I can do it on my own. Paul says, no, you're wrong, that you too are under God's judgment. And then he turns to, remember, the very religious people of the day who were the Jews. And be it Jew or or not, uh, very religious people are trusting in not a relationship with God, but they end up trusting in symbols. They end up trusting in things that ought to represent the reality that's inside them. And the Jews were not. The Jews were trusting only in externals, saying that the possession of these externals were sufficient and guaranteed them uh, immunity from God's wrath and judgment. Paul indicts them. He says, you too are under God's wrath. Nobody escapes. And he says this now in the ninth verse. He says, in conclusion, or what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? In that effect, is there anybody that has any advantage? He says, not at all. He says, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Nobody escapes. And then he's going to go on and he's going to call God to testify. You see, Paul has already spoken from the testimony of creation, has he not? He said all of creation testifies. From the testimony of history, from the testimony of logic and reason, even from the testimony of conscience that man is guilty before God. And now he's going to call his last witness God himself. We're going to get God's final word on this issue, whether, man, whether or not man is guilty. Because all along the way, men argue. Well, I didn't see. Well, I don't see where history says that. Well, you know, I'm not sure of the logic of your reasoning. Or my conscience doesn't quite say that to me. But now we've reached the final place. Where God himself says, you're guilty. And let me show how guilty you are. Let me show the extent of sin in you that leads to your incredible guilt. Paul has been spending the last, and we have been with him, the last two and a half chapters showing us the very real bad news that exists. And unless we understand the bad news, and unless we're, un- we're able to share the bad news, then we're not going to be able to understand the good news, nor are we going to be able to really truly share the news the good news, with others, with conviction. People are going to say, well, so what? God loves me. Big deal. So what? He wants to save me. What's he want to save me from? If you can't clearly spell it out and show people that there's a very real wrath and a judgment coming, you can tell them all day God loves them. is not going to make any difference to them. Not at all. Paul has spent a lot of energy, a lot of time, and we have too, exploring the bad news. And in the 21st verse through the 26th verse, Paul then spells out the good news, and the whole rest of the gospel, the whole rest of the epistle uh, fills out what Paul says in those six verses. All under sin. What does that mean? Under sin means under the power, under the dominion, under the reign, under the rule, under the authority of sin. What is sin? It helps me, when I think about it, to describe sin in these terms. It it is a disease. So virulent, so powerful, so terminal. So all-inclusive that none can escape its power. It's sin. It's this this force, this very real presence that permeates every aspect of our being that is the cause of evil. That's the cause of pain and disease and hurt and grief, loss. Indeed, death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God for eternity. It's sin in us. And there is no person who is sinless. There is no person who is free. No person who who escapes it. Everybody is contaminated. Indeed, all of creation has been contaminated. The whole earth is full of sin. It has spread. It's not just limited to man. And because we're sinful, we continue to contaminate, we continue to pollute, we continue to affect, in a negative way, ourselves and everybody and everything around us. You can't help it, can you? You just drive your car and you pollute the environment. You don't intend to, that's not your purpose, but it's the fact that you're stuck in a fallen, sinful, defective world that by definition we pollute. By definition, we sin because we're sinful. It's overwhelming, isn't it? There's no way that we can keep track of everything we need to keep track of. Isn't that true? We keep long lists, appointment books, date books. We fill our calendars full of stuff just in an attempt to be a person who is faithful, (laughs) And yet something slips through the crack because we're, because of our sinfulness, we just can't keep track. And some very important date or maybe some not very important date slips through and, and we see it and we go, oh no, and it creates problems for that person, the next person. It's because we're sinful. But you can't write all this stuff off and say, well, you, we're just sinful and that's it. It leads to the very real issue of Guilt. We are guilty because we are sinful. There's no way around that. But man, you see, man likes to say, I'm good. I'm okay. It's going to be all right. True? Man likes to pat himself on the back. We encourage each other and we say, well, you know, you're okay. I'm okay. Oh, didn't they write a book by that title? Yeah. <laughs> we're all okay. And we keep encouraging and, and, and telling ourselves, it's going to be all right. We're all okay. And all the time we're running, aren't we? We're running away from very, our very real feelings of guilt. We're immersed in a consumer society, and we are consuming so fast at such an incredible rate. We've got to have this. We've got to fill that. We've got to get this. We've got to get that. We're running so fast. Why? I'm convinced we're doing this because we can't stand to spend one minute quietly because when we do, we've got to face ourselves. Down deep inside, man is not convinced that he is good. He's not and he dare not stop and take one minute to examine himself, because when he does, then he says, Yuck! I don't like what I see in myself. I don't like the evil that I see. I don't like the way I think. I don't like what I say as a result of what I think, and I don't like what I do as a result of what I think and say. And incidentally, uh, from verse 10 through 18, those passages out of the Old Testament that Paul's going to quote, he breaks them up into those three categories in that order. He deals first with man's character, and then secondly, he deals with man's speech, what he says, his conversation, and then thirdly, he deals with man's conduct, his behavior, what he does. And it's in just that order, isn't it? But you see, men look down deep inside themselves, and they say, I don't like what I see. I'm not convinced that I'm good, as I would like to be convinced. All men are under sin. All men are affected. Nobody escapes. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody. This is how inclusive the indictment is. Man's greatest problem is sin and its resultant guilt. That's his greatest problem. Everything else is peripheral. Everything else is secondary. Nothing else really matters, but man's real problem, his inevitable, his undeniable sin and guilt. Man is guilty before a holy God. You say, what hope is there? What can I do about all this? I want to read to you um, an article, a little snip out of an article from a well-known expert on the subject of social ills and social difficulties and problems. I want you to hear what this expert has to say. I'm quoting Ann Landers. is one of the most painful self-mutilating time and energy consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt it can ruin your day <laughs> profound would you say or your week or your life if you let it it turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest hurtful selfish rotten or tacky. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weakness, or just plain old clay feet. You did wrong, and the guilt is killing you. Now listen to what she says next. Too bad. Too bad. Be assured that your agony is normal. Oh, great. Thanks, Anne. (laughs) She goes on and she says, Remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. End quote. Now, she says that guilt is painful. Do we agree? Sure. She says that guilt is normal. She says that guilt is a pollutant. She says, we don't want any more of it. Well, I agree. But the question you want to ask her, how do I get rid of it? What do I do with it? It's there, all right. And it's all these things you say it is. And I can't deny that it's there. Though I may try to deny it, what do I do about it? No solution. No solution at all for man. Man's greatest problem. He doesn't know how to deal with guilt because he doesn't understand that it comes from sin. It comes from his sinful nature. That he by nature can't do what he ought to do. By nature he's not perfect. He's imperfect. By nature, he continually falls short and hence experiences guilt. It's by nature man's greatest problem. And yet he seeks in all manner way to try to resolve it, to try to find some solution, some means, some way of dealing with it. I want to share with you a little story that I heard. A man wrote a check for $50 and sent it off to the IRS. And along with the check, he sent a note saying that I'm sending you this check because I can't sleep at night. You see, because I was dishonest with my income tax. P.S. If I can sleep now, great, wonderful. But if I can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. (laughs) You see, a half-hearted attempt to deal with a very real issue of guilt. He knew he was guilty. He couldn't sleep at night. But a very feeble attempt at dealing with it, a very inept attempt at dealing with his real, very real guilt. And people do that all the time. Don't they? People, in an effort to deal with guilt, you know, guilt is so overwhelming and can be so consuming that it drives people to some myriads of forms of compulsive behavior. They're so guilty and so out of touch with their guilt and so unwilling to face it and deal with it because it can be so painful and so humiliating to deal with it. It's much easier to go the other way and suffer the consequences of guilt-driven. People start drinking. They start taking drugs. They enter all kinds of things. They get into all kinds of foolishness. Guilt will drive people literally insane. Guilt will cause people to, because the pain is so great, the deep personal pain is so great, it will drive people to commit suicide. Do you see why it's so urgent and it's so important to understand what's the cause of guilt? And to deal with it at its root cause, not at its symptomatic cause. And people today are entering into all kinds of uh, psychological and psychiatric mumbo-jumbo and exercises, and they're searching around to find out where all this guilt is from. And and they only end up in the long run blaming somebody else for it. Well, it was the way I was raised. It was my second-grade teacher that hit me when she needed to understand me. And it was this thing and that thing and the other thing. You see, we only compound the guilt. Not only are we guilty, but now we make it worse because we're passing the guilt off on somebody else. We're guilty of that. Can you grasp? Can you grasp how how resistant we are, even Christians, how resistant we are to owning responsibility for our lives? We are resistant to that. Not only is the is the the rank heathen, unbelieving, lost, pagan that way. But oftentimes the Christian must confront that also in their life. Very real guilt. And God doesn't mean for us to carry it around. He wants to get it off us. But he's got to convince us, first of all, of the reality of sin and its result in guilt in our life before we'll turn to him as the solution, as the source for this great relief that we hope for. Sin is, is like injury, physical injury. You know how physical injury results in, in in pain? The pain is redemptive. God gives us pain so that it's a signal to us that what we're doing is wrong. It's gonna make it worse for us. I remember my little boy, one time we were teaching him some stuff and, and we were teaching him about hot, you know, trying to protect him from touching a hot oven door. Because he was real curious. He wanted to get to that oven door, and we told him hot. We ran his hand under some warm water. We couldn't do it under hot water, obviously, but under some warm water to kind of give him the idea of what hot was like, that there were some consequences. We tried to help him to make the connection between hot and owie. figured we'd done a pretty good job. We left the room. We hadn't done as good a job as we wanted. We'd only increased his curiosity. And so he went for that hot oven door and he grabbed it and we heard a, owie. We came running back in there and he said, hot. (laughs) (laughs) He learned. (laughs) Unfortunately, he had to learn that way. But he learned what hot meant. He learned that there's a consequence. He learned that if he had continued to hold on to that thing, he'd have fried his hand. You see how pain is redemptive? It saves us when there's physical injury. Guilt is the same way. Guilt is a signal to the soul that we've injured the soul by doing wrong, by sinning. It's a signal that says, stop. If you continue on, you're going to fry yourself. You're going to sear your conscience. So that there's no more feeling, no more sensitivity to your detriment. So guilt can be redemptive, but we still have to learn how to deal with it as we have to learn how to deal with physical pain appropriately. We don't keep pressing the issue. We stop. We examine what's the source. Why am I feeling guilty? What's the issue at heart? It's sin. What have I done? Or what have I not done that I ought to have done? This is where the gospel begins, as I've said earlier. We can't share the good news until first we share the bad news. The patient can't take the medicine unless they first know they're sick. True? This is where the gospel begins. The recognition of sin and guilt, and this is the purpose for the church. This is why we're here. We're here to communicate to other people who are lost that they're lost. Too many times we smooth over judgment. It's not cool to talk about hell. It's not cool to talk about the wrath of God because people say you're automatically you're a fanatic. When people say that to me, they say you're a religious fanatic. I said, No, I'm a fanatic for Jesus. I'm a fanatic for you. Because I know what you're headed for. You don't yet know it, and I want to acquaint you with it. In the clearest terms, I know how to do. That's the purpose for the church. To help people understand what's what. The bad news and the good news. Without the church, people aren't going to know. That's why God's called the church into existence. Certainly, he could come down. He could stand here in a pillar of fire. He could part the heavens and he could say, cool it. And even then, I suppose people will not cool it. We have testimony of that out of the Old Testament. But God has chosen to work through His people, through His church, to testify, not just with their words, but with their life, too. The realities that are in eternity, both good and bad. That men are sinners. And there is a way, a very real and effective way of dealing with guilt. Dr. Barnhouse has a neat illustration about how resistant men are to this very issue of confronting their own sin and guilt. I'm sure that many of you will identify with this. He says, It is only stubborn self-pride that keeps man from the confession to God that would bring release, but that very way man refuses to take. Man stands before God today like a little boy who swears with crying and tears that he has not been anywhere near the jam jar or the cookie jar or whatever. And he is outraged, and he pleads with an air of outraged innocence the justice of his position. And he is in total ignorance of the fact that a good spoonful of the jam has fallen on his shirt just under his chin and is plainly visible to all but himself. I can see a few of you relate to that. I didn't do it. How can you blame me? You know me. You know I would never do anything like that. You can trust me. I would never in a million years. And I, you know, right? Yet the whole time there's jam right there. Red handed, guilty as all get out. And yet the person stands there and says, No, not, I didn't do it. When I was in high school, we had, a, we had this philosophy going around amongst the students cheat, cheat, cheat. And if you get caught, lie, lie, lie. <laughs> and you know that it worked. It got us out of more jams. There were a group of us who were just, you know, we're cool. We'd cheat. I'll never, I went to Bishop Montgomery, and I'll never forget. This buddy of mine and I were sitting across the roof, and we were cheating on a spelling test. Just blatantly cheating. And Father Alexander, who was the meanest priest there, <laughs> caught us, caught us. And he came roaring down the aisle and stood right there. And we just he had us stay after class. He confronted both of us and he said, you're cheating, weren't you? We said, no. You cheated, didn't you? No. I mean, he nailed us. He nailed us. He had us dead to rights and we lied and we got away with it. Because we said, how could you think that of us? We're both varsity club members. We're on the student council. We would never, ever do anything like that. And you know what? We got him to think twice, and he thought, all right. That's man's very nature to deny it, and pretty soon you deny it long enough, and you begin to believe it, and you can convince other people. And you can justify it and get away to your own detriment. Oh, how horrible. You see the reality of that? Terrible, isn't it? Absolutely terrible. Then he says in verse 10, as it is written. It's a settled issue. That's it. It's written. And in the Greek, that's in the perfect tense. That means, in fact, this is God's final word. There's nothing more to be said. It's a perfect statement, final in its application throughout eternity. It is written. Here's God's word and God's perspective now on man's condition and his own very real guilt. What's written? Well, look what he says. First, he deals with man's character. He says, there is no one righteous. No one righteous. Then you got this little guy saying, but what about me? What about me? God says, not even one. No one. Oh. Not one who is righteous. What does that mean? What does righteous mean? It doesn't mean human righteousness. Righteous means good, just, right. It's not that man isn't good, relatively speaking. It's just that man's goodness doesn't satisfy God. Okay? What's the standard? God. That word righteous is always used to refer to God and to Christ. The righteousness of Christ. God's righteousness His goodness, His justice, His rightness. That's the standard. How good do you have to be? As good as God. As good as Christ. That's how good you have to be. You ever been up in an airplane and you're flying along and you look down on the earth and it's a clear day and you can see the the houses and the the land and the the little cars on the little tiny roads and though it's hard to see people, you, you know there's people down there like lamps, you know. You got this incredible view of things, right? And you go, wow. Look at all that. How can God keep track of all those people? He's got this giant computer. (laughs) Well, Imagine God sitting on the throne looking down. Wow, look at all that. There's not one who's righteous. Not even one. Wow. Can you feel his heart? Not even one as he looks down at his creation. That's how bad off we are. He says, there's not even one who is righteous. Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, the 9th verse, Jeremiah says, the heart of man is deceitful. Deceitful above all else. It's it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? Again, a a confirming testimony that man inside is rotten to the core. He's evil. There's no good in him that can satisfy God. Man's heart, his internal being, is deceitful and corrupt. This isn't my word. This is God's word. This is God's word. And if you don't believe it, you have to reckon with him, not with me. I'm just a messenger. I'm just pointing you out to what he's saying. And it is it's frustrating to think and to look at yourself with all the righteousness you try to muster, all the goodness you try to to gather up about you, and to hear somebody say that it's nothing, and that you're deceitful and corrupt from the inside. Isn't it? That's hard to take, isn't it? But that's how God looks at us. No one righteous, not even one, Then in verse 11, he says, man is not only bad, not only totally corrupted from the inside, but he doesn't even know what good is. He doesn't even know what the truth is. He doesn't even understand. He is so lost. He is so immersed in darkness. God looks down. He says, there's no one righteous. Not even that. There's no one who even understands. We live in the midst of the information society. Do you know that? That's what we're called. We're in the age of information. Everybody has a computer or access to one. And more and more people learn how to use them. Even we got a computer in our house. We don't even know what to do with it yet, but we had to have a computer. (laughs) Incredible. We're filled up with information. We got more information than we want to do with. We got to buy new computers just to store all the information. They've got, I heard on the radio they've got, and I don't know anything about computer language. Some of you are very acquainted with that. You have to correct me if I'm wrong. They, They talk about megabytes, you know, spaces for information. They've got some incredible thing they've just come up with, some chip, some little thing that they can store zillions of bits of information on now incredible incredible we're full of information we got lots of information but no truth no one understands no one has understanding no one has a grasp on what's true and right everybody's got all this information we're running back and forth trading information but no one's got the truth God looks down and says no one understands No one understands. Awesome. ...destroyed and fell down into the second story. And now man, though he is able to understand things on a second level, human things, he can't understand the things of God because his spirit has been destroyed. Spiritual understanding is gone. He's darkened. And though there are remnants down deep in him like little bricks and pieces of brick and mortar and building material that are reminiscent of that third story, these things cry out and they say, ah, there's got to be something more. But he doesn't know what it is. There's faint remembrances of something, faint longings and things that say, come, come, come. But man doesn't understand. He's darkened. He can't relate. The whole third story has been destroyed. He can't relate spiritually to God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, real quickly. Verse 12. Verse 12 of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may what? Mm -hmm. Understand what God has really given us. We can't understand these things except that we have the Spirit of God living in us. You've got to be born again. Jesus' own words are, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He won't understand it. He won't comprehend it. It won't make sense to him. He'll get it all jumbled up. He may know the terminology. He may have information, but he will not see it. And that's exactly what Paul says here. Verse 13, he says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. God is rebuilding the third story in the lives of people who come to him. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. They say, don't talk to me about that stuff. I don't believe that. That's foolishness. And you've heard people say that. You've even said it at times. He cannot understand them, Paul says, because they are spiritually discerned. Turn to the fourth chapter of Ephesians with me. It goes 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, then Ephesians. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Verse 17. Again, listen to Paul saying and reinforcing this very point that people do not understand. Man has no understanding in and of himself. Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. listen to those words. Darkened, understanding, separated from the life of God, ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. At what point did man harden their hearts? I believe that man is born into this world and he's given two witnesses. He's given the witness of God from creation. Paul says that in the first chapter. And he's given a witness of God from his sense of conscience, his sense of right and wrong. Two very reliable witnesses. But Paul goes on in the in this first chapters of Romans to say that man hardens his heart. Though God has revealed himself, made himself plain to man, and that man is without excuse... Although man knew God, he neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks. And his thinking became futile, and his heart became darkened. His foolish heart. Man hardens his heart. That's the power of sin. Sin drives you away from God. Sin controls you. Sin dominates you. And when God reveals himself, it's the very power of sin that you can't do anything about that drives you away and causes you to harden your heart. That's how all-consuming and devastating sin is. It leads ultimately and inevitably to guilt. He said, what are we going to do about this? Well, let's get back. Man is darkened inside. He's afraid. Man doesn't know. He has no understanding of what his problem is. He knows he has a problem, but he doesn't know what the cause is. He doesn't know what the remedy would be. And the church is, to, is supposed to go out and help people understand this. You see, men, when you, when you take the gospel to them, when you reach out to them, you find their resistance is really out of fear and ignorance, isn't it? When you bring the gospel to people, they're afraid that you're going to take something away from them or you're trying to hurt them, you're trying to fool them. They don't understand. They don't know you're trying to help them. They're kind of like Ringo the Duck. You remember Ringo? No. You don't remember Ringo the Duck? I gotta tell you about Ringo the Duck. Because <laughs> you'll see a very great parallel between man and Ringo the Duck. Up in Toronto in Canada, there is a park at which name I forget. Grenadier Park, I think that's the name of it. And there's a large pond in the park in which, you know, a lot of birds and ducks and so forth congregate in that in that pond. And as men are wont to do in a public place, in a public facility and parks and so forth, they throw their trash and their cans and junk in the pond. And there was this duck that got its beak into one of these cans and somehow got the, the, the loop, you know, the pull tab loop around its beak. And in an effort to get loose, couldn't get out of the thing, but pulled the tab off the can, but was left with this pull tab, this ring tab around its beak. And it was stuck. It couldn't get the thing off. And it began to starve. Some of the people in Toronto picked up on this, observed this, wrote into the newspaper, and pretty soon one thing led to another. And Ringo the Duck was a project for the whole city of Toronto. Save Ringo the Duck. They call him Ringo because he had this ring around him. (laughs) It's amazing what uh, great causes people will rally around. People are dying every day and going to hell, and no one's writing the newspaper about that and saying, "Save people! Let's save Ringo the duck." They did everything they um, they could imagine, they could think of, to save Ringo, to get a hold of him, so they could get this ring off his beak, so that he could eat and wouldn't starve to death. They hired a cannon that would shoot a net over the pond. They wheeled this thing out, they shot this net over the pond in order to trap Ringo, but by this time Ringo was so paranoid they trapped every other duck except Ringo. (laughs) They littered breadcrumbs and corn and feed and all manner of things on the water and along the edge of the pond in order to lure Ringo over in the hopes that they could grab him and pull this thing off and he could feed. Would Ringo come? He was paranoid by this time. And he stayed away. They got every other duck feeding. They hired a scuba diver. I mean, would we go to this length to save a sinner? They hired a scuba diver to get into that water and swim underneath Ringo to sneak up on him and grab him and pull that ring off. Ringo knew what ducks looked like. He was not fooled. He saw this big thing swimming toward him and he took off. They hired the champion duck caller in Canada to come and call Ringo. He called and called and they got more ducks than they knew what to do with. Did Ringo come? No. Men are like Ringo. They're lost, they're hurting, they're dying. They don't even know why. And they have no way out. And when you reach out to try to help them, they run, don't they? Ultimately, they finally got a hold of Ringo. They freed him, praise God. But only because of their persistence. Their persistence. They were committed to freeing Ringo. Ringo. There's a tremendous lesson in there for us. Many of us have family and friends who are not saved, who are on the road to hell. And should they die in their present state, they're going to go there. Now, ours is not to judge them, but ours is to reach out and to cry out and to say, look, the Bible says, unless you give your life to Christ, you're going to go there. It's real. It's real. And this congregation abounds with testimonies of people who were persistent for years to pray, to testify, to love the people and their own families, spouses, into the kingdom of God. This congregation abounds with those testimonies. But you see, men don't understand. God looks down and says, "There's no one no understands. The last thing he says, there's no one who seeks God. No one who seeks God. You say, wait a minute, I got you on this one now, Zach. I, I, I could go with you on the others, but, but wait a minute. What about all these other religions? What about all these other people? What about all these other religious things, situations that are going on? You're telling me that no one seeks God? That's right. That's what God's Word says. No one seeks God. What's he mean? No one on their own initiative seeks out after the true God of the Bible. If they're seeking a God, they're seeking a God other than the true God. They are, in effect, running from the true God. In the book of Genesis, in the third chapter, after the first pair had sinned and rebelled, disobeyed God. Did they go running to God, asking for forgiveness and and redemption? No. What did they do? They went and hid. They ran away. And eventually they created their own system, their own religious system to assuage their guilt, to convince themselves that they were okay. No one seeks God. And if they are seeking God, the true God, they're doing it because God has initiated and reached out and led them. Turn with me to the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. Listen to Jesus' own testimony. The 37th verse. If I can get to John's gospel here. 37th verse. Listen to what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Who will come to him? All that, what? But the Father gives. Who's reaching out? Who's initiating? The Father. Look at the 44th verse with me. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. Draws him. God reaches out. God draws men. Even the wise men who came to worship at the birth of Jesus were led and drawn by God. They didn't come on their own initiative. No man seeks after God. That's how lost men are. That's their state. No person seeks after God on their own. God is reaching out. He's reaching out into this congregation today. And he's drawing people. He's calling people. He's opening up people's hearts. And he's saying, come. Come. Let me heal your sin. Let me forgive your sin. And let me relieve your guilt. Let me be the solution to your life. That's what he's saying. Men are without righteousness. They are without understanding. They don't even seek after God. That's how lost they are. But God wants to change that. He's calling you today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen each and every person today to give their hearts to you in a full way. Lord, those who don't know you here, Lord, that your spirit would be just poured out on them and the truth of these words might become real. Lord, that they might flee to you and see you as the solution to their problems and their dilemma. Lord, for those of us who are Christians who are carrying around guilt because of our own disobedience, our own laziness, our own foolishness. Lord, that we would cry out to you and say, forgive us that we too might be relieved of our own personal guilt. Lord, we are sad creatures left to ourselves. In every area of our life, we need you, and we need your help. We need your strength. We need your wisdom. I pray, Lord, that we would come to you and come to you with broken, rended hearts, that you might fill us up and give us that new heart, new life. We thank you, Lord, and praise your name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to call our ushers to come receive our tithes and offerings. and.